Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. My first night in prison was the worst night of my life. I mean, I'll, I can ne I'll never forget it because it was, a, um, it was right around my birthday, a time that you're supposed to be celebrating and being happy. And I was... Uh, you know, um, on my way to, to doing a life sentence in prison. And it was the most depressing, the most just worst imaginable experience that, that one could ever have. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, I was really desperate. I was so fearful. I was, you know, I was afraid. I was scared. I mean, I didn't know how I was just going to be able to, to make it through it all, you know, and it was still, it still hadn't completely sunk in, you know, that, uh, you know, that I was, you know, facing a life sentence. I was so overwhelmed with fear, um, and sadness, you know, I felt alone. I felt, uh, you know, like I was just trapped. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. You know, you can't go crying to mom and dad or whatever. Mom and dad can't help you. There's nobody that can help you. And you really, the only person that can help you is you, you know? And I just felt, um, just like I said, overwhelmed with fear and just backed up in a corner basically and just trapped. I just, I, I was, that was, that was a moment in my life that, um, I faced a lot of scary moments, but that was by far the scariest moment of my life. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kenyatta, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, really, really cool to have you here. I came across your story by way of our mutual friend, Chris Redlitz, and he had told me a little bit about what you were up to. And when he said that you had spent 19 years in prison, I thought, okay, there's got to be an amazing story here uh, that we really have to dig into. But before we get into all that, I want to start with something that I found has been very informative. This was a question that actually came from one of my partners who said, why don't you start the show with this question? So I want to ask, uh, start by asking, when you were a kid, what is it that you want to be when you grew up? And how did that influence the choices that you ended up making later on down the road? You know, when I was a kid, I, I really wanted to be a football player. You know, I wanted to uh, uh, play for the Oakland Raiders. I wanted to be a quarterback. I wanted to, you know, throw touchdowns for a living. But, um, you know, as I, as I grew, you know, a little older, um, you know, I, I just, I fell into this, to this mindset ultimately that, uh, you know, that I, I couldn't do it. I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't big enough. I wasn't strong enough. Um, you know, there were, there was all these different, and I was looking more at the, at the, uh, at what I didn't have and couldn't do, um, as opposed to what I did have and I could do at the time. 
And that really, uh, that was, you know, one of the, one of the hugest hurdles that I've had to get over in life, you know, to propel me forward is just to be able to focus on what I do have and what I can do. And so as a young person, yeah, that was, I had aspirations of being an NFL quarterback. Obviously it didn't pan out, but, um, yeah. So as somebody who has, has dealt with, you know, really sort of dark periods in which, you know, a tremendous amount of hope was required, um, which, you know, like I said, we'll get into all of that. When people are excessively focused on what it is that they can't do or what they don't have, I mean, based on your experience, how do they shift that focus? I think you have to get to a point in your life when, uh, you know, you have to ask for help, you know, and for me, that was a, a huge part of it for me. I mean, I had to, I had to learn how to ask for help to figure out how to do something. And I think, uh, asking for help and, and, and receiving it and figuring out solutions to problems really, um, helps you shift that focus and that mentality. At least it did for me. Um, I don't know about other people, but it did, it really did for me. And it really opened up my mind to a world of possibilities of, of what I did have and what I could do as opposed to what I didn't have and couldn't do. Hmm. So walk me through how you go from uh, the desire to be an NFL football player to ending up in prison for 19 years. Like what ultimately led you down that trajectory? I think for myself growing up, um, I, I grew up without my father. Uh, my father uh, divorced my mother when I was six months old, and you know I I I didn't really understand the impact that my father leaving our family had on me and my brothers until you know I really started doing this introspective work when I was in prison. Um, but uh, you know, as a kid, you have dreams and aspirations of doing all kinds of things. Um, and then when you're faced with, you know, you, you have this, these traumatic events that happen in your life and then it kind of stagnates uh, your growth and your development. And, you know, without being able to uh, having a, um, a process in place to, to kind of deal with that trauma, then, you know, this unresolved trauma comes out in different kinds of ways. And for me, uh, having the traumatic experience of my father leaving me and my mom and my two brothers when I was young and always having this deep, deep, uh, seated feeling of, of wanting him to come back and not being able to get him to come back. Cause my father left. He never, you know, sent me a Christmas card, never got a phone call from him. I don't even remember the sound of his voice. Um, to have this, this deep need for my father to be there and then to feel helpless because I couldn't get him to come back, um, it made me start thinking that, you know, maybe something was wrong with me. Maybe something was wrong with my mother or my brothers. There was something wrong with us that, uh, that made him not want to come back. And so I grew up having this, this growing feeling that, that I was lacking something, that, I, that there was something wrong with me um, and growing up as a little kid with that and not understanding how to process that, not, not understanding how to articulate that to somebody else, um, was really difficult, you know? And, uh, I, that mindset as it grew, as it continued to grow into my teens, um, 
you know, I lost track of the goals and the aspirations that I was really, uh, you know, that I wanted to, you know, wanted to achieve in life, like being a quarterback. I mean, those things fell to the wayside because I was so consumed with um, trying to to find something to fill this void in my life that I had. And, um, you know, as it grew, as I grew up, you know, I, I, this void grew bigger and bigger and I was trying to find other ways outside of myself to fill this void. And so, you know, I felt, uh, you know, less than I felt like something was wrong with me. And so I was trying to find ways to, um, to fill that void in my life. You know, I was seeking, seeking, external things to to fill this internal void so to speak and so i i started uh you know hanging around um this wrong crowd drifted further and further away from sports and drifted more and more and more towards this group of people that i thought um you know would make me feel better about myself where i could feel like i was somebody and uh you know i just it just led me down this path of making one bad choice after another, after another, after another. And, uh, I eventually, you know, the, the, cho- the kind of choices that I was making it, I mean, it really only leads to two places and that's either prison, um, or six feet under the ground in a coffin. And, you know, by the grace of God, I was able to, to wind up in prison, um, instead of dying. So, um, when you, I know that's a pretty lengthy answer and there's still, I mean, there's, there's a lot more that I could talk about there. I mean, um, there, there was just so much that, that I went through as a young person, um, that took me away from, uh, those dreams and aspirations that, that you asked about in your question. So, so what was the first of those choices and what was the one that ultimately landed you in prison? And I'm just curious during the entire process, uh, I mean, you clearly had an awareness that these choices could only lead to one of two places, which is prison or death. Uh, and yet you continued making them. So I'm curious, you know, uh, what your sort of in mindset during that period was like. Well, I mean, I didn't really understand that that's where it was taking me. At the time, I thought that these decisions and choices that I that I was making were just making me cool. They were helping me build a reputation where people, you know, would accept me, you know, for who I, you know, for who they would just accept me. But I mean, I didn't understand that the choices that I, at the time, I didn't understand that the choices that I was making would lead me to prison or death. Um, it's only a retrospect that I look back at it and I can see that now. Um, at the time, I was just consumed with uh, being accepted by this group that I was trying to hang out with and be cool. Um, does, that, does that answer your question? It does. Um, I'm curious, you know, one, what were the, were the choices and, and also what happened to uh, the people within that group and, and you know, uh, throughout your life, like what role have they played later on in your life? Right. So the uh, one of the main I, I would say that probably the most uh, one of the most impactful choices that I made um, back then was when I started smoking pot. When I started smoking pot, um, you know, I, I started skipping school and then eventually dropped out of school, which was another huge uh, decision that I made that, that took me in the wrong path, uh, down the wrong path. Um, so between starting to use drugs, smoking pot and hanging out with this wrong crowd and then ditching school and then getting to the point where I thought that school was not important. I mean, when my hanging out with this group of people became more important than going to school, 
um, that was a huge turning point for me. Um, it really, once I stopped going to school completely, um, it just opened up, you know, a whole, uh, I just had more time to make more bad decisions basically, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the, the choices and decisions I went from using drugs and smoking weed every day to, you know, to starting to sell drugs, um, and went from, you know, marijuana, selling marijuana to selling cocaine and um, mushrooms and acid and these kind of things um, as a young person to experimenting with all that stuff. Um, yeah, it just one bad decision after another that led me down the path to prison. But that's where it all started at. Hmm. And what about the people that um, you were surrounded with? Um, what happened to them and, and you know, what role have they played in your life ongoing since then? That's a great question. Uh, Some of them are dead. Some of them are in prison and others completely abandoned that lifestyle altogether and are, um, you know, school teachers and family people right now. You know, so uh, I had like I said, I had people that um, that were part of my life back then that aren't with us anymore that died for whatever reason. Uh, And other friends that are that went to prison like I did that are still in prison serving time or in and out of prison or maybe have done time and then got out and are in a personal prison. They might not be in jail, uh, you know, but they're still inside a personal prison, even though they're on the outside and, um, and friends that, you know, that recognized early on that had uh, mentors or family members or parents that, that, um, you know, that really got through to them and they started making different choices and are, you know, never went to jail and never, you know, made the mistakes that I'd made, but have actually started families and are, you know, positive people in the community today. So as somebody who sold drugs and actually spent time uh, in our in our correctional system, I'm just curious, what are your views on things like the legalization of marijuana now that, you know, you've come out of this system? You know, I have mixed feelings about that because I feel like on one hand, uh, the war on drugs uh, was just another tool that was used to, you know, to incarcerate a ton of people, especially black and brown people. Um, there you have people that are, you know, serving life sentences still under these mandatory minimums, federal mandatory minimums for, you know, possession, sale of marijuana. And now you have, you know, people that are making money off it legally right now. And it just, it just so that doesn't sit well for me. Um, I think that, you know, drugs, uh, have a huge impact on kids' lives. And so I think that, you know, the more that they're around and easily accessible, I think that, you know, a lot of kids could wind up like I did. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the legalization of marijuana. Um, and I definitely don't agree with these mandatory minimum laws that they have out there for, you know, people that are serving these, you know, crazy sentences for, you know, possession of a drug that, people are walking around using freely now in certain states. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done in that regard. And I, I definitely have you know, mixed emotions about it. You, know, you said earlier that because of the grace of God, you ended up in prison rather than dying. And, you know, I think that's a, a really sort of interesting statement because um, there are a lot of things that uh, I'm not scared of. I think, to me, nothing sounds more terrifying than the prospect of going to prison. Like I, I think I, I like I, I told a friend once. I think I think death sounds less terrifying to me. So, 
I mean, in a moment when you realize that you're about to spend this much time in prison, I mean, what goes through your mind in a moment like that? And how is it not just the most terrifying thing in the world? And, and how, do you, how do you find hope in a moment like that when you know, you, your whole life suddenly disappears before your eyes, which I realize is a big question. Yeah, that, well, I can tell you that, um, you know, both of those alternatives are like, you know, they're, they're at the end of the line. I mean, it's for me, you know, when I found myself, I never, you know, imagined myself being in prison. It wasn't something that, you know, I ever imagined for myself or ever thought about happening. Um, well, once I found myself there, you know, it was, I never thought that I could make it through a life sentence or that I was the kind of person that could just make it through prison. But once I found myself there, especially with a life sentence, it was like, you know, it was, uh, I had, you know, two simple choices, either sink or swim, you know? And at the time I, I made a choice to swim, but it wasn't something that I did consciously. It was like, um, you know, uh, it was all about survival really. You know, you're, when your back is against the wall, you have to make, you know, tough choices. And for me, it wasn't even a, you know, something that I thought about. I just responded to the situation in the only way that I knew how. And that was to fight for my life, you know. Um, today, you know, back then, you know, it was all about survival. But today, I mean, I look at it and I see, you know, my choice to, to really fight for my life as, as really a testament to the, you know, to the, to, to the human spirit, to the resiliency that we have. I mean, even if we're, you know, we're facing a situation like that, I mean, we, we all have this, you know, inherent quality in us that, that will, that will fight self-preservation, you know, um, to survive. And, you know, once I, once I, you know, started doing that, I mean, trying, just trying to survive in prison, then I started taking a look around and, and seeing what was going on around me. And I saw other people who had, um, you know, who had endured long periods of time. And I thought, you know, heck, if they can do it, then I can do it too. There's got to be something in here that they could, you know, help me do that. And, you know, I think a huge part of it for me too, uh, a motivating factor for me was that, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to die in prison, man. I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want my legacy to be one of a, of a thief, or a convict or a prisoner, you know, I really wanted to do something different with my life. Um, I just didn't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. And, uh, you know, so I, I just started seeking out different ways to make it. And, and, uh, I, I just wanted to get out. I didn't, I never wanted to, to spend the rest of my life in prison. I wasn't content with just playing cards all day and just accepting the fact that my life was just going to end inside prison. I just didn't want to go out like that. Um, and so once I just made up my mind to, to start, you know, moving towards that light at the end of the tunnel, um, and I saw that I never lost sight of that, even though with a life sentence, I didn't know when I was going to get out. But, you know, uh, once I saw that light at the end of the tunnel, that just became my, my guiding light, uh, so to speak. And I just started doing everything that I could to, to, um, to achieve my goal of getting out one day. And, um, and it was, it was, it was really, really, it was a tough thing. I mean, you know, being in prison, prison is a really violent place. It's a really, um, desperate place. It's, 
It's, uh, it's, it's everything that, that you see on TV and so much more. You know, there's so much more to it. Um, one of the things that really helped me maintain hope and my, my uh, maintain sight of that light at the end of the tunnel was, you know, I used, to, I used to do these like exercises every day, first unconsciously, and then I started, you know, really focusing in on doing it. But it was, you know, this, I used to just envision myself every day at count time, they have this thing called count every day inside prison where they count every single person. And uh, in California, it's at four o'clock. It's a mandatory count where every single prison counts every single prisoner. And all these numbers are sent to some place in Sacramento. And, you know, they confirm that everybody's where they're supposed to be inside. And during count time, I used to um, lay on my bunk or be wherever I was at and you know, just close my eyes and, and envision myself leaving prison. I used to envision myself, you know, interacting in the world and, and, and being, you know, a good person, the person that I, that I wanted to be. You know, I used to envision that all the time. And, you know, every single day, uh, that exercise, you know, it was just, it would take me away. It would take me away from where I was at. But it was something that really helped me shape and change uh, the mindset that I had when I entered prison. Um, at the time when I entered prison, the only thing that I could see were the things that were going wrong and what I didn't have. And so, you know, in order to change that, you know, I started really thinking about how I wanted my life to be. And, um, you know, over the years, that mindset, you know, uh, doing that, it helped me, you know, develop a mindset that that transcended not only the prison walls, but you know, the boss that I had created in my own mind. There is just so many questions. Um, so my perception of prison obviously has been shaped entirely by media and movies and things like Shawshank Redemption. So I, I have to ask this question just out of pure morbid curiosity. Do you remember the very first night? And can you tell me what it was like? Oh, wow. I mean, my first night in prison was the worst night of my life. I mean, uh, I can ne- I'll never forget it because it was a um, it was right around my birthday, a time that you're supposed to be celebrating and being happy, and I was uh, you know um, on my way to to doing a life sentence in prison, and it was the most depressing, the most just worst imaginable experience that that one could ever have. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, I was really desperate. I was so fearful. I was, you know, I was afraid. I was scared. I mean, I didn't know how I was just going to be able to, to make it through it all, you know, and it was still, it still hadn't completely sunk in, you know, that, uh, you know, that I was, you know, facing a life sentence. I was so overwhelmed with fear um, and sadness. You know, I felt alone. I felt, uh, you know, like I was just trapped. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. You know, you can't go crying to mom and dad or whatever. Mom and dad can't help you. There's nobody that can help you. And you really, the only person that can help you is you. You know, and I just felt um, just, like I said, overwhelmed with fear and just backed up in a corner, basically, and just trapped. I just, I, I was, that was that was a moment in my life that, um, 
I, I faced a lot of, of scary moments, but that was by far the scariest moment of my life. Um, and I could easily see how some people would begin to even think about maybe even taking their life, you know, being faced with that kind of situation. Um, for me, it was, it was, it was really, really hard. Most difficult, most difficult day of my life. You know, um, I remember, uh, getting to, um, this place called RJ Donovan. It's the reception center for all of the, um, for the people that are going into the California prison system, um, from San Diego County and the neighboring Orange County, I believe, um, they get sent to a reception center called RJ Donovan. And it's in, uh, Eastern part of, uh, Southern, um, um, Southern San Diego County. And, uh, you know, the first day that I got there, I mean, I was trying to keep a stiff upper lip around my homeboys or whatever, but inside I was just, I was petrified. And I remember, um, getting put in the cell, uh, that they put me in, um, and then having the door slam behind me for the first time and, you know, sitting on that bunk and thinking about how much time I had to do. I mean, I wasn't just going to be in there for a couple months or, you know, maybe a year or two. This was like an indeterminate life sentence. You know, they call it the end of the line in prison. I mean, that's it. You know, there's there's only actually there's only one more place you can go. And that's, uh, you know, on death row. And thank God I didn't get there. But, you know, having a life sentence and being as young as I was and and really as inexperienced as I was with prison. I mean, it was it was really, really, really scary. I mean, I wish that I, I wish that I could, um, and I wrote a piece about it. It's on Cora, um, that, uh, that really um, probably gives a better description of what I described right now. But, um, it was just thinking about it right now. I just put chills on my arm, just thinking about it. And I'm just so thankful that, uh, that I'm not there anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I met a lot of people, um, while I was, going through that, that period of time right there leading up to my first day. And then after that first day, a lot of people that were experiencing the same thing. Um, I remember this, this one guy, uh, that I talked to and everybody, this guy ended up getting victimized really bad because he showed, you know, his true emotion at the time. Um, there were guys that this guy actually just came down to the day room and just started crying you know, in front of everybody. And there were people who saw him start crying and that eventually, you know, preyed on that weakness or, you know, his, his vulnerability, I won't say weakness, but vulnerability. And, um, you know, ended up, you know, taking this guy and just, you know, really just abusing him to the point where, um, and I never saw him again. He tried to commit suicide. I never saw him again, but really horrible experience. And, you know, seeing that, you know, really, let me know that, Hey, you know, this is the kind of environment where you really can't show how you feel, you know? So just imagine having all that fear inside of you, but not having anyone to talk to about it. And every time that you come to the yard, I mean, you have to have like a, you know, a good poker face, a stone face. You can't, can't come out to the yard and start breaking down crying. You know, you can't do that, you know? So, um, just imagine having all this going on inside of you and, and having to keep it in. No one to talk to, no one to really share how you're feeling. You know, that, that made it even 10 times harder. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I guess the, the next question that I have is, um, how do you find some semblance of a meaningful life knowing that you're going to be in there? Like, you know, I mean, I'm guessing during this time you've probably made friends, um, I am just so curious, you know, one, how do you find some semblance of a meaningful life? Two, um, you know, I mean, I think for us, at least those of us listening, what we've seen are, are things that you've described, like excessive violence, which that to me, I think is the most terrifying thing, because I'm a small dude, I feel like I would get killed within a few days, somebody would just beat the shit out of me, and it would be over. Um, that that to me, I think is the thing I feared, I'd fear the most. Uh, but you know, the, the bigger question is, you know, how do you find semblance of a meaningful life? And then, you know, what is a, what is a typical day like? Um, you know, what, what do we not know about the typical day of somebody who is in a situation like the one that you are in? 
Well, in prison, you, you really have a lot of time to think, you know, think about not only the crimes that you committed, but your life. I was facing a life sentence. I was 25 years old at the time. Um, for probably the first five or six years, I was in really deep denial about the role that I played in getting myself there. Uh, but once I got through that denial, then it was really all about taking accountability and responsibility for what I had done. Um, and then when I started thinking about, you know, the victims that I created, you know, I've always felt like I'm a good person. You know, I, I just, I didn't show it all the time with my actions. Um, but once I got to that point where I accepted, you know, the, the harm that I had created in my community and the victims that I created with the crimes that I committed, then it was, became all about how do I make amends? Even if I never get out of prison, I want people to know, at least in here, in the community that I, that I live in, that I was a changed person. You know, so I started just seeking out different ways that I could add value to my community and make amends by helping other people so that they could potentially turn their lives around and not commit more crimes and not create more victims. Because the reality of it is, is I couldn't go back and put the gun back in my pocket and, you know, take away the, the robbery that I committed. I couldn't do that. You know, those people were traumatized for the rest of their life by the crime that I had committed against them. What I could do, though, was do the work on myself to ensure that, A, I never commit a crime like that again, and B, take what I've learned and help other people so that they don't go out and commit those crimes, you know? And so I found peace in that. I found freedom in that. I found even inside prison, if, if I never would have gotten out of prison, I knew in my heart of hearts that I was a changed man. And so I lived that out every day on the prison yard. Um, and, you know, that's what helped me. That's what helped keep me moving forward is because I knew that I had changed and I knew that, um, that the work that I was doing was helping other people as well. And so that's the first part of your question. The second part was, I'm sorry. Second part was, what is a typical day uh, in the life of a San Quentin inmate like? Like, what are the things that we don't know? Because, like I said, I think all we get exposed to is is sort of the violence and you know what we see on TV shows like Lockup. Right. Well, I can tell you right now that there is a really, really large percent of the population at San Quentin that are engaged in that same process that I just described to you. So many of those guys there are doing the work that's necessary. You know, to, they're, they're not in prison just to get out. They're actually in there working on themselves, taking college courses, getting educated, becoming uh, new people so that when they do get released, you know, they're able to be, um, you know, assets to themselves and their families and their community um, as opposed to being a detriment to the community. Um, I personally know. Um, hundreds of guys that are at San Quentin right now that are involved in all the same programs that I took that helped me turn my life around. Um, so a typical day for me, what it looked like, um, you know, I, I would get up in the morning and, um, you know, uh, get ready for, uh, for breakfast. I'd, you know, leave my cell in the morning and I had a, a job as a peer health educator uh, and I did. I worked with and helped facilitate a bunch of programs at San Quentin that um, that helped me stay out of the cell pretty much all day. And so, 
once I left the cell in the morning, I wouldn't get back until like almost nine o'clock at night because I'd be involved in so many programs. And so the first program would start after I left the chow hall. So I'd get up early in the morning, leave my cell, go to breakfast. I would see, you know, many of the other guys that I was working with, some of my mentors, you know, talk to them about maybe a problem or something that I was having or uh, something that we'd be working on later on in the day or the week. And, um, we discussed these things over <laughs> prison cuisine <laughs> at the little tables that they have in there. And, um, you know, then we leave the chow hall. Uh, I would go um, down to the lower yard where they have um, a big yard down there where people can, you know, um, exercise and that sort of thing. And so I would go and I would walk some laps, um, usually with uh, a friend of mine that I worked with. Um, and we would discuss you know, the different programs that, that we were going to, um, the different parts of the program that we were going to uh, facilitate for the day. So he would, he and I would kind of have a check in and we'd walk a couple laps and, and talk about that. And then I would get some exercise in and I was, um, you know, big on exercise on the inside. So, uh, and I would do pull-ups and dips and push-ups and, you know, run laps and that sort of thing. And then, go back to my cell, kind of clean up, and then go down to work. My job started at 9 a.m. So by the time 9 a.m. came around, I had already accomplished a lot of things. And that was something that, that was really big for me, too, that helped, helped me keep hope alive, too, was that I was actually doing things that were productive. You know, I felt, I think for a long time, I felt guilty about, you know, not living up to my potential, you know, in life. And so... Every single day, you know, I had tasks that, you know, that I would want to complete. And, you know, um, exercise was a huge part of that, keeping me focused. And so I would do all those things before nine o'clock. And once nine o'clock came, I would report to my job. And my job at San Quentin was a, a peer health educator. And so I used to work for an organization called Center Force. And Center Force was, um, uh, a services provider at San Quentin. They're a nonprofit organization that that really focuses on bringing families together and focusing on health and wellness. And one of the things that I, one of the programs uh, that I got involved in with them was their peer health education program. And peer health was really designed to, to, um, to help us as individuals learn more about our health and what we could do to stay healthy on the inside and then it was like a peer-led program where um, other guys that were inside with you would teach you this stuff. And then the idea was each one teach one. So I could be um, a peer health educator and just walk around the yard and, you know, if health issues came up. I mean, for example, there were um, a lot of questions about HIV and how HIV was passed around. And what the peer health education program helped do was um, – uh, debunk a lot of the myths that were out um, about how these um, viruses and diseases were transmitted between one another. And, and so the, the peer health education program helped, you know, provide a lot of, a lot of answers to these questions. And so I went through the initial training and then I actually got offered a job to be an official peer health educator on the yard. And so we used to facilitate, um, this uh, this program where guys would sign up for these health education classes, 
and they would come down and one of my one of my um, responsibilities was uh, facilitating and teaching these classes uh, to help guys learn more about their health and connect them to health resources once they got out of prison. Um, and so we used to give these presentations uh, about um, hepatitis, you know, inside prison, tattooing and intravenous drug use is kind of prevalent. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, and the prison has a position of abstinence. They, they say, you know, um, don't use drugs. That's just their approach. Don't use drugs. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. But the reality of it is, is that people do use drugs. And if people are going to use drugs, then how can we help them, um, you know, not spread HIV or hepatitis C inside prison? And so one of the things that we used to do was um, take these guys through um, a curriculum and a course that would help them understand um, how to be safe. Instead of saying don't have sex, how to have safe sex. Instead of saying don't use drugs, how can you use drugs in a way that that doesn't spread HIV or hepatitis C? And so we would take them through these different steps of you know how to be safe and how to eventually get off drugs if that's something that they were ready to do. Um, so I would facilitate these classes for from nine o'clock in the morning till about um, two o'clock in the afternoon, and then. You know, once I got off work, I normally would report to another program that I was involved in. One of the programs being the last mile. Um, another program that I was involved in was the prison university project. Um, I was uh, in college. They have college courses there. So um, I would report to, you know, whatever class I had that day, um, report to that. And then four o'clock would come around and I'd go to count, go back to my cell and do my uh, meditation and visual visualization um, uh, practices that I would do there. Then at about five o'clock, count would clear normally right around that time. And then I would go to dinner. They would have chow. So sometimes I would go to the chow hall. Sometimes I would just make food in the cell and eat food there. And then around six o'clock, I would report to more classes. And so they would have college classes at night. The last mile was at night. So I would go to the last mile um, and do that from six until about 845, where I had to go back to myself for another count. And then that's when they would have lockup. That's when everybody would report to their cells at around nine and it would be lights out. And, you know, I would uh, normally just watch the news, watch what was going on. One of the things that you know, that um, that most prisoners um, feel is this really deep-seated desire to stay connected to the outside world in some form or fashion. And, you know, the probably the most popular way that people do that is through television. And so we're allowed to buy televisions on the inside. If you have someone that can afford to send you some money to buy a TV, then you buy the TV um, through, a, a, through this package program that they have there. You receive a package that has a TV in it. You set it up in your cell, and then you have TV there. And so one of the things that I would do at night would be to watch uh, watch the news, catch up on you know current events, politics, 
um, what was going on in the Bay Area since I was in um, San Quentin. You know, we got local news channels there, so we would stay up on, um, you know, the latest uh, current events that were happening. And then around, you know, 10.30 or so, um, 10.30, 11, I would go to sleep and, and that would be it. Next day, I'd wake up and do it all over again. So I have one other question about this, um, and this is specifically about sort of the the violence that we tend to see on on TV and all the things. How do you avoid that? Like that to me, I think is is the thing that I, I would fear most about it. And I'm curious, how, is it is it seemed to me like I always felt like it was one of the, you know prison was one of those places where you don't have to look for trouble; it finds you. In a lot of ways, yes, and I think that. Um there are things that you can do while you're on the inside prison that can help you stay safe and help you avoid violence. Uh, most of the violence that's in there is directed at people who, who violate some kind of code in there or do something that, um, that, uh, you know, raises the ire of the people that are around you. Um, when I entered the prison system, I was giving I was given by other people around me um, a, a set of uh, of ethics and a uh, you know um, a code, so to speak. There's rules inside prison, and if you stick to the rules, then you can pretty much avoid violence. Sometimes there's riots. Sometimes there's stuff that that happens that's outside of your control that puts you in harm's way, whether you like it or not. Um, prison is a very racially charged environment. And so if you're black, then you stick with blacks. If you're white, you stick with whites. If you're Hispanic, you know, you stick with your, you know, your group. Um, for the most part, I think that, um, uh, so here's a couple of the rules that, that I stuck to that helped pretty much keep me safe the time that I was there. The first one is mind your own business. You see stuff happening all the time in prison. You know, the main thing is just to keep your mouth shut. You don't talk about other people's business. You don't talk to the cops. That's another rule um, about what you've seen. And so I can recall being on the yard and seeing people get stabbed for, you know, various reasons. And even though you see that kind of stuff, you turn and you look the other way, you walk the other way. You don't want to get involved in things that don't, um, that don't pertain to you. And so you mind your own business. That's rule number one. That'll help keep you safe. Um, and you don't talk to the cops. I mentioned that just a second ago. Um, if, uh, you know, one of the cops, you know, uh, identified you as being somebody who might have known something, you know, when they sit down to interrogate you, you know, there's a simple, simple um, statement that you make. And for me, it was I wasn't there. I didn't see anything and I don't know anything. And that's it. You know, I didn't see anything. I wasn't there and I don't know nothing. And if you stick to that, then you're OK. The minute that you start providing information to the cops about anything, then you put yourself in a situation where um, that's probably most dangerous uh that's probably the easiest way to um, to have violence uh, come upon you is by um, by telling, by snitching, by um, you know providing information to uh, the authorities, so to speak. Inside, you know, being labeled a snitch is probably the worst thing that you can be on the inside in prison, and that'll that'll bring violence your way really fast. Um, so, 
those two things, along with uh, a couple other rules like um, 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 not getting in debt. Um, the first person that I ever saw get stabbed in prison was a chronic gambler. And he would, you know, get involved in card games and dice games and, you know, end up owing a bunch of people money. And um, owing people money inside will get you hurt really fast. Um, so I didn't, um, I minded my own business. I never talked to the cops and I never got caught up in any kind of gambling or any other kind of illegal activity inside prison that could put me in debt. Being in debt inside prison, that's a, that's a surefire way to get you hurt. And so I didn't do any of those things. And when, um, when I was confronted um, with violence, there were certain situations where maybe I would get into an argument with somebody on the basketball court or something like that. And you have to, you know, you have to fight. You know, it's just that simple. And you have to not be afraid to, um, to use a weapon if need be. Because um, inside prison, there's very few fist fights. Um, a lot of times weapons are pulled and you have to be willing to do that. And if you're not, then, you know, you'll, you won't last very long. And so um, having that kind of mentality uh, is something that, that keeps people alive inside prison. It's not something that you want to bring to the outside world, but while you're in there, um, it's something that'll keep you uh, standing on both feet uh, for as long as you need to. So you mentioned um, that you had been exposed to people who served really lengthy sentences and people who were serving life sentences um, or endured incredibly long sentences. And I'm curious what you learned from them about persistence, hope, and grit. I learned a lot from a lot of different guys that are still serving time inside that endured um, race riots, that endured the toughest yards and prisons that you could ever imagine. And a lot of those guys are filled with, um, you know, the kind of wisdom that will keep you, you know, alive in prison. And so, um, you know, I tried to learn as much as I could. You know, those rules that, that I just, the couple of the rules that I just shared with you right now, you know, those were given to me by guys that had been around, um, that were veterans, so to speak, on the inside. And, um, you know, it's that kind of wisdom that you take to heart. You know, if, if it worked for them, then, you know, my, my reasoning was it could work for me as well. And it did. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the day you got out. Tell me about the transition from life on the inside to life on the outside, specifically the very first day. Best day of my life, by far. I've never, I've never experienced anything that felt better than me walking out of prison after serving a life sentence. Nothing compares. Nothing comes close. I can't even put words together to describe the feeling but if there was one word that I could use to describe it, it would just be joy. The most incredible sense of joy that I've ever felt. Um, I had been in prison for uh, a couple days short of 19 years. And, you know, being in prison with a life sentence, obviously, you know, you, to navigate your way around the landscape of an incarcerated setting is very difficult. Um, doing that from, uh, you know, through the lens of having a life sentence is twice as difficult because 
I mean, let's face it, when you're in prison with a life sentence, there's this uncertainty, you know, that that you'll never get out. And I mean, that in itself is is very, very daunting. Um, And so, uh, you know, for me, it was the daily the daily uh, stress that you have to endure in there. Um, I mean, you have to, you have to really dig deep. I mean, you have to, for me, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, you know, I believe in God. And so I used to pray all the time. I used to, you know, seek guidance from, from people that I knew from the outside, you know, family members who are spiritual people as well, who prayed for me every day, you know, it was all that combined that really, really helped me stay on you know, the right track. It was, it was so hard. Um, and then when I finally made it to the gate, when I finally, you know, had made it through all of that and, you know, getting out and getting released, I mean, and like I said, it was just an, just an incredible sense of joy. Um, transitioning to the outside world was, um, it wasn't as difficult for me as it might have been for other people because I had done so much, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do once I got out and how I wanted to live my life so that, you know, when I was finally here, it didn't seem foreign to me because I had thought about it. I, I thought about what it was going to feel like to, you know, um, get on BART for the first time and take BART and, you know, I, I thought about these kind of things, you know, situations, what's going to be like to go to the grocery store and finally have the ability to choose what I want to eat. Um, I thought about that and I thought about it so much that once I was actually here doing it, it, it felt like second nature to me. So it really wasn't that tough for me to do. It really wasn't that big of a deal for me. I didn't, you know, it just felt natural. Um, and obviously, I had a ton of support in that as well, too. I wasn't by myself. I had I had created this support system for myself when I was on the inside so that when I did get out, if I had a question or if I, you know, was feeling uncertain about something else, then I, I had somebody that was a phone call away that I could talk to about what I was going through to help me solve those um, minor problems that I was having. Um, and that was... That was super important for me. And I think it's super important for anyone that's leaving an incarcerated setting for any amount of time um, is to have that support system for you to help you. Uh, you Like I said, um, uh, I had a support system for myself. The last mile has been a huge part of that. You know, Chris, Chris uh, Redlitz has been somebody that um, that has been he, he both he and Beverly and the other graduates of the last mile have been there for me uh, to help guide me. Um, you know, through, you know, whatever I might be going through out here. Um, so that's been um, a huge part of, of my um, successful reentry. And it's something that I try to share with uh, other graduates of the last mile and other guys that I know that have gotten out that aren't even part of the last mile, but might need, you know, um, support too. That's, it's a big deal. It really, really is. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I mean, I got a chance to watch your your TED talk, but our listeners don't know 
And then another question that comes from that are, what are the life lessons from the inside that you apply on the outside um, to the work that you do in the life that you live? Well, to the first part of your question, um, what I'm doing now is obviously I still work with The Last Mile. I'm on the, uh, the board of directors for The Last Mile. And I'm also an evangelist for the organization. So I do a lot of talks in different places. Uh, you mentioned the TED Talk. That was one. Um, I've done a number of different talks at different places to share not only my experience, but um, what we're doing with The Last Mile and how it's helping people now and how we think it can help people in the future. Um, so that's that's been a huge part of my life since I've been home. Um, I work at a technology campus called Rocket Space, which is, in essence, really like a hotel for tech startups. Um, we provide an ecosystem for startup companies to help them grow their companies and become successful. Um, I'm the manager of campus services at our San Francisco location, and I, I basically manage the physical infrastructure of the campus. And so I deal with a lot of contractors, a lot of vendors, and obviously our members who are here on campus and help them so that, you know, help provide all of their needs while they're here on our campus so that they can focus on growing their companies. And so um, I've been here at Rocket Space for um, going on three years. Uh, in, in July, it'll be three years. Um, I started at the company about two weeks after my release from prison. Um, I met the founder and CEO of Rocket Space, um, Duncan Logan, um, through my participation in The Last Mile. Um, Duncan is um, friends and business associates with a, a business associate of um, Chris Redlitz and Beverly Parenti. And Duncan was brought into um, San Quentin to me to be a mentor for myself and the other members of the last mile. And, uh, after our demo day, um, which is the graduation uh, ceremony for the last mile grads, you know, I approached, um, Mr. Logan and just, you know, asked him straight up, you know, when I get out, you know, would you consider giving me a job? And he said, yes. And so, uh, this was probably about a year before I got out. Um, when I did get out in 2013, and I contacted Duncan uh, through Chris, and uh, he held true to his word. Two weeks after I was released, I started as an intern. He gave me an internship at Rocket Space, and um, you know I entered the internship with the mindset that you know I'm entering this tech world, and I don't have a degree, you know, in um, computer science and and business management, I don't have any of that. But what I do have is a really strong work ethic. You know, that's one of the things that I developed when I was on the inside. And, you know, I entered Rocket Space with the mindset that, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes to to be part of this team and to help move this company forward. And I don't care if, if I have to, you know, show up early and leave late, work weekends. If I have to uh, make coffee and dump trash and scrape gum off the floor, then I'm going to be the best um, coffee-making, trash-dumping, gum-scraping person that they've ever seen. And so I entered, you know, Rocket Space with that mentality. And, you know, through hard work and dedication over the last three years, I've been able to work my way up from being an intern to being the manager of campus services that I am today here. Well, I can see why Chris referred you to me. This has been just riveting and, and fascinating. Uh, 
So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow, that's a great question. I think what makes somebody unmistakable is their desire to um, exceed um, all expectations, even their own. Um, I think what makes somebody unmistakable is their their desire to to be the best person that they could be, to be the best um, at whatever it is. Um, the person who's willing to um, take risks, legal risks, of course, um, and you know, stay outside of that comfort zone and constantly develop, um, constantly try to grow, um, constantly um, uh, reaching out for help when they need it and be somebody that's, um, that's genuine and authentic and um, somebody that's, somebody that's, just, uh, that's just completely um, committed and driven to achieve their goals and to, to help others. I think that's what those are key ingredients of somebody that's um, unmistakable. Awesome. Well, uh, Kenyatta, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has just been such a, a mind blowingly cool conversation. Well, I thank you for having me, and I really appreciate you know your support of our program and to the listeners out there. You know, there are a lot of people who are leaving incarcerated settings and. There are a lot of people who've made the necessary changes that they need to make. And I feel like, you know, they need our support. And so if you have the, the opportunity to, to help somebody, you know, please do. You know, everybody that's leaving an incarcerated setting isn't coming out ready, you know, or thinking about committing another crime. I know that there's a lot of stigma associated with, um, you know, with ex-felons and, you know, people who are leaving jails and prisons. But they're people and people have redeemable qualities. And, you know, if, if people are given an opportunity to do better, they can and will do better. And so, you know, I, I just encourage everybody out there to, to think about that and to, you know, to do something to help the next man or woman. Well, I think that makes a, a really just fitting and poetic way to wrap up our conversation. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next time on the unmistakable creative support is one of the big in my courses on leadership support is is as a leader that's one of the most valuable things you can provide for people and i know you're talking about it being on the receiving end of support but for me what i can do for myself and my students and my clients is to be able to give them the ability to support people more effectively and when you support someone the loyalty that you get the appreciation that you get the dedication you get is so great. And so many people think of leadership as like, you know, you telling people what to do and they don't realize how much work support takes, but also it's not just work, meaning like you burning calories or uh, burning the midnight oil. But I mean, like you have to put the other person's interest before your own. You have to figure out what is hard for them. What's easy for them. You have to empathize with them. You have to, you have to have compassion and if you do that effectively, then, you know, you never, you, you never have to worry about micromanaging because it doesn't happen if you, you know, if you do it effectively. Professor, author, and entrepreneur Josh Spodek joins us to talk about the art of hustling. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.